Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. Well, that's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, the top philosophy quotes of all time. I guess one thing we're doing here with this podcast, it's uh, it's kind of a mixture, a blend of, I guess you could call it high and low culture, uh, hoity-toity meets the hoi polloi, if you will. I'll ultimately let you, the listeners, decide who's who between the two of us in that equation, but maybe in this next little bit I can clarify it. One of us will wax eloquently on some pre-Socratic fellow like Anna Maximander, And the other one drops some stream of consciousness stuff that makes reference to some weirdo sports podcaster that pronounces, I don't know, like pronounces subsequent, subsequent, and proclaims things that barely rise to the level of mild coincidence as completely ironic. I don't know. Maybe it's some bizarre ode to Alanis Morissette. Speaking of weirdo, bizarre sportscasters, there's this guy, insanely popular in North America, maybe the whole world, I don't know. He's named Bill Simmons. One of his strangest peccadilloes is his obsession with list making. That's not strange in itself. We live in a culture of listicles, uh, a bizarre portmanteau of list and article that surely signals some kind of thing that the end is absolutely nigh. He'll either do, like, his thing, it's not that he's making the list. Like I said, it's it's how he numbers them that really intrigues me. He'll do, like, a, a quote-unquote nice round top 11 list. Or he'll do a conventional top five, but without batting an eye, he'll include nine items on his list. Like to him, there are currently 11 top five players in the NBA. Absolutely insane. But then I saw he sold his company for like $150 million. So ironically, let's follow suit and do an absurd top two philosophical quotes for the month of May. Top in what way? Who knows? Just send the giant check. Um, just to let you know, Anna Maximander, that's not a real person. And uh, Hoi Polloi, really? But yeah, so, so like you said... Let's try something new here, Bill Simmons style. So let's do the top two philosophy quotes for the month of May. You know, those quotes or or one-liners that we've all heard, even if we don't know the source or even the meaning. So today, without giving away too much, let's discuss 
two very famous ones. The first is, to be is to be perceived. And the second one is, this is the best of all possible worlds. Okay, well, let's, let's do it. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't already know, but Madonna is one of the great minds of our time, perhaps of all time. Like, if you've ever seen her face lately, though through undoubtedly some sort of deep spiritual study and journey, she's been able to go beyond the bounds of traditional human form. Not just that, but people forget her conscientious anti-Iraq war record, American Life. It not only stopped the war, it finally brought peace to the entire Middle East region, all while including the lines, I'm drinking a soy latte, get a double shate, goes right through my bate, and you know I'm satisfied. And keep in mind, these lines were rapped, not sung. Sort of. Sidebar, I might be taking a double shot at Madonna here because when I was a little boy, my mom wouldn't let me get the Like a Virgin album because at the time, I didn't know what a virgin was. Not knowing what a virgin was probably kept me being one for quite a bit longer, but that's neither here nor there. Back to Madonna. Her undeniable intellectual academic peak has to be her song Material Girl, a song that firmly cemented all notions of philosophical materialism in every sensible person's mind. It all but proved that states of mind, consciousness, are of course the result of the material world, material interactions. And she did this all while dressing like Marilyn Monroe, displaying many qualities prized by the superficial heterosexual male. But as much as it seems like Madonna has the whole argument locked down, I don't know. You seem to think that some guy, not a very hot guy either, some guy named Berkeley or something, has a little something different to say that, you know, what is it? It's like to be perceived or something as being is whatever? Wow. Why can't it ever be a simple comment or question? It's painful. And by the way, it's not Berkeley. It's Barkley. And the real quote is, not being is whatever, but it's, to be is to be perceived. And um, strangely enough, I think Madonna could be made relevant here, but not at all for the reasons that you give. Right, now that that's all sorted out, let's get on with this. So what does Barkley mean by, to be is to be perceived? Well, let's start with something um, seemingly solid. Let's start with physical matter. So, Barclay denies that matter exists. Now, you might think, well, that's crazy. We perceive matter all the time, right? But Barclay wants us to look at what's going on here a little more closely. So, when we say that we perceive physical matter, say, um, I don't know, a red rock or something, what exactly are we sensing? Well, Barclay says that we're basically having a, a complex sense perception that includes the, the sensations of hardness and redness and smoothness and so on. So what we're actually perceiving are sensations or images and not physical matter as such. That's to say, according to Barclay, all those qualities that we're perceiving, you know, the sensations of redness and hardness and shape and, and so on, all actually exist only in our mind not in some so-called external world. So, basically, if we perceive only sensations and don't ever actually perceive physical matter, then according to Barclay, 
we can't claim to experience physical matter. And so, well, because of this, he thinks that we have no basis for believing that physical matter exists. In other words, there's no such thing as um, mind-independent physical matter. Or, if there is, it's just not something that could ever be proved. Okay, well, so what are the objects that we perceive then? Well, again, basically, they're nothing more than the ideas or images that we have of them. Or maybe another way of putting this is to say that a thing only exists if a mind perceives it. So, there is nothing outside of a mind. And that takes us to Barclay's famous quote or phrase. So, to say that something exists is to say that something's being perceived by us. So, to exist and to be perceived come down to the same thing for Barclay. To be is to be perceived. Okay, but now you might be thinking there's a bit of a problem here. I mean, what happens to something when we stop perceiving it? If I stop looking at this microphone and leave the, um, the wisdom of compound, does it disappear? I mean, if sensible objects exist only in the minds of we who perceive them, if uh, something is only when it's perceived, then how can ordinary things continue to exist when, when we're not perceiving them anymore? Shouldn't my mic pop in and out of existence as I enter and leave the room? Well, as it turns out, the answer is no. That's to say, it turns out that, according to Barclay, the existence of what I see actually doesn't depend exclusively on my seeing it. Now, it's true that sensible objects can't exist without being perceived. But, um, here's the thing. He doesn't think that I or you are the only perceivers. We may not be watching everything all the time, but there is someone who is. Namely, God. So, even when I close my eyes to, to go to sleep, this microphone I now see will continue to exist because God is still seeing it. So, God, for Barclay, is the great perceiver. And it's through his um, constant perception that reality holds together. Without the idea of things being in his mind, nothing would possibly or could possibly be. Okay, well, apart from strictly academic philosophical concerns, how is Barclay's to-be-is-to-be-perceived idea relevant to us in a more practical or topical way? Well, I can think of one very obvious application, and it has to do with our, our world of social media. I mean, I would say that one reason that we're so addicted to social media is that posting on social media is a way for us to, to prove to ourselves that we exist. I mean, remember... What's implied in Barclay's claim is that we don't exist if we're not perceived. So we can see our posting ourselves on social media as a way of being noticed by others so that we can escape our anonymity and affirm that we do, in fact, exist. Without this posting on social media, the truth of the matter is, is that we often feel lost and empty as if our existence were somehow in limbo. We need others to watch us to feel secure in our being. Actually, you know, this reminds me of something else. 
In a strange way, Barclay's connection to our social media world reminds me of what's going on in Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, a play that we covered in a past episode, by the way. Now, for those of you who don't know, the entire play consists of conversations between two vagabonds, or tramps, Vladimir and Estragon, who are waiting for the arrival of the mysterious Godot, who continually sends word that he will come, but who never does. Okay, so how is this connected to Barclay? Well, in the play, the two tramps suffer from a lack of meaning in their lives. And that's basically because they're waiting for Godot to give it to them. In other words, as long as Godot is absent, Vladimir and Estragon feel insubstantial and empty. Well, Another way of putting all this is that because Vladimir and Estragon remain uncertain about being perceived, they remain uncertain about their own existence. This is why they're, they're constantly looking for something, as they themselves say, to give them the impression that they exist. And I think it's safe to say that Beckett is making a larger point here. It's something like this. Just like Godot's absence forces the tramps to contend with the substance of their existence. When God's perception is withdrawn from the world, it forces all of us to deal with the consequences, which is to say, questions about the very ground of our being. Okay, so lastly, we have Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz and his famous thought, the best of all possible worlds. But frankly, it's really hard, especially within recent news coming out of the U.S., uh, Buffalo, New York, in California, most recently in Texas. If we're lucky here, there won't be another like soul-crushing tragedy before we publish this episode. And if I could better see outside my own little Western bubble, surely I'd know about more and more things going on all around the world that would be equally hard to accept. But, hey, give it a shot. Explain to us what he means by, you know, the best of all possible worlds. Um, that's Leibniz. Now, that's two major embarrassing mispronunciations in a row. Again, you have YouTube to prepare. How hard can this be? Okay, so our second famous quote is, This is the best of all possible worlds, by the German philosopher Leibniz. So, what does this mean? Well, Leibniz wanted to justify the ways of God to us. And one way that he did this is by trying to argue that God had created this world and that it was, all things considered, the best of all possible worlds. Now, Let's be clear about this. Leibniz's view here is not just about being an optimist about things. In other words, it's not just the view that the world is on the whole more good than bad, or that things are getting better over time. And it's not expressing the attitude of trying to see the, the glass half full or something. No, Leibniz is claiming that the world could not possibly be any better. Or again, that this world of ours is the best that could have been created. Now, if we don't think it is, if we think that it's worse than it needs to be, then Leibniz would say that it's because we have a, a highly imperfect or limited understanding of the universe. Okay, but let's um, back up a bit and go through at least some of the, the fundamental details in Leibniz's argument. 
So, first, it's important to understand that at the root of his argument is the claim that God is not just all good, but he's a perfect being. And it's because of this, Leibniz says, that God cannot but have chosen the best when deciding which world to create. For if God had chosen an inferior world, or any other world than this one, it would follow that he could have done better. But that, of course, would be incompatible with the idea that he's perfect, right? Okay, but now you might be thinking, well, this world of ours seems to have a a great deal of evil in it. Um, And you highlighted some of those things. So isn't this problematic for Leibniz? Well, his reply to this would be that there's really no inconsistency here. In other words, it's possible for the best possible world our world, to contain a lot of evil. Now, why? Because, as he says, evil brings forth a greater good. Now, we don't necessarily see this because of our limited capacity. But rest assured, says Leibniz, if we could somehow grasp all the interconnections, we would discover that all the evil things that happen are necessary to secure some greater overall good. Such is God's design. Or um, maybe another way of putting all this is that all the misery that we experience has its reasons or explanations, since otherwise God would have done things differently. Okay, now I can imagine that some of us still might not be convinced by any of this. Simply put, we might think that this world of ours could just be a heck of a lot better than it is, and that it's warped or irrational to think otherwise. Well, if you think this, you're not alone. In fact, Voltaire, who lived just after Leibniz, was a harsh critic of his. And in this regard, a couple of examples come to mind especially. So, one had to do with the the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which killed over 30,000 people who were at mass, ironically. Anyway, when Voltaire heard about this, he said, it's really difficult to work out how the laws of physics create such horrendous disasters in the best of all possible worlds. He went on to criticize, quote, the deceived philosopher who claims that all is well, end of quote. And um, actually, and here's the second example. Voltaire went on to write the the satirical book, Candide, in response to Leibniz. As you might know, in that story, the main character, the young Candide, is beset by terrible misfortune after terrible misfortune, only to be told every time by his older teacher, Dr. Pangloss, a.k.a. Leibniz, that it's all okay. Why? Because this is the best of all possible worlds. Now, again, this was all satirical. What Voltaire was trying to tell us was, well, that it's cheap and it's superficial to justify evil and tragedy by invoking such a justification or explanation. In other words, what Voltaire hated was the idea that an abstract philosophical system like Leibniz's could somehow prove why suffering is essential and therefore not something about which we should get overly upset about. No, that's not the right outlook, Voltaire thinks. 
No reason can't make sense of tragedy. And tragedy is not necessary for some greater purpose. And the proper response is not to philosophize in the form of justifying God's ways. No, it's to relate to our brothers and sisters who suffer with empathy and with sensitivity and to mourn for them. And it's to say, not that this is the best that things can be, but instead that things are highly, highly imperfect and that there's a hell of a lot of work to be done. And so it's to resolve to do our best to make changes on the ground to ensure that tragedy strikes just a little less often in the future. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode is 